Welcome listeners to a brand new bonus episode of Oh My Word Podcast. And today we've got a really special treat. We have with us author and former broadcaster, Kim Curry. Kim, welcome to the podcast. Hi Esther, thanks for having me on. It is a treat and a pleasure and we're very excited and there's so much to speak about so let's just go straight into it. How did you get here? First of all, radio broadcasting but also I'm gonna write a book and let's put that out there and see what happens. Origin story. So yeah, former 33-year radio broadcaster. My dad got me my first job when I was in high school. He was a radio guy. So I'm a radio baby. It's really in my blood. I spent 33 years traveling around America working for some of the best radio stations in the market I was in. I was in San Antonio, Washington, D.C., Baltimore, Maryland, Knoxville, Tennessee, Pueblo, Colorado. And I spent 25 of 33 years in Miami, Florida. Here's what happened. When I left college, because I left high school because I was on on my dad's radio station, well, where he worked. Then I went to college, spent two and a half years. I was supposed to be studying music because I was a trumpet player in high school. And I really thought I was going to be a band leader in Jetmore, Kansas or someplace like that. I have a high school band, but I got sidetracked in the radio business. And by the time I got to college, six months into it, I stopped going to my music classes and started really concentrating on broadcasting because there's just something about being a radio DJ. The first time you hear your voice on the radio, you think... (gasps) This is cool. So while I was in college, I had a part-time job at one of the local top 40 radio stations. And I learned how to have a radio show, learned how to talk on the radio. In those days, we had to put the records on separately and cue them up to the very beginning and then push the button to start it and then turn the other one off. And this is all going on while you're trying to say, hey, I'm the radio DJ and here's the very latest song. It was quite a mission. But after two and a half years of being a top 40 radio DJ in my college town, I decided that I had learned enough. I was going to go ahead and start sending out audition tapes and see if I could get a job in the big time. Part of the radio business in the 1970s and all the way through until the big corporate takeovers after 1996 was you start off young and then you try to get to the biggest radio market you can get to. And of course, the number one radio market is New York City. Six months after I left college, I actually left school to go to Knoxville, Tennessee, where I was there for six months, my first full-time job. And then six months after I was in Miami, Florida, the number 12 radio market in America, I had a unique radio show. And the reason is because of my name. Now, Esther, you said my name is Kim. Yes, Kim Curry is my name. But when I was in college and I worked for that little top 40 radio station, the program director didn't want to put a guy on the radio named Kim because in the 1970s, there weren't too many white guys named Kim. You've heard radio stations and you know they have those sweepers that talk about, we play the best hit music and here's 25 minutes of commercial free music. Well, those guys are hired by the company to come in and do these drop liners. And on the day that the guy was in to do the drop liners for that month at the radio station, I was in the production room because it was my first day and the boss wanted to give me a new name. So he picked up a 45 single and it was the Monster Mash. Now that's Bobby Boris Pickett did the Monster Mash, but the song the Monster Mash was written by a guy by the name of Gary Paxton. So he picked up the Monster Mash, looked at it and said, okay, your name will be Gary Paxton. So that's how I got my first fake radio name was because the guy didn't want me to be Kim on the radio. So I'm two and a half years into college and I'm sending out these auditions and I send one to Knoxville, Tennessee, and I'm driving across the country to my first full-time radio job, going to be on the radio at 10 o'clock at night. And remember it was 1976. So I thought I'd call myself Night Smoke. 
which was a very cool name for those days because DJs were named Boogeyman. You had Wolfman Jack. So I just came up with the name Night Smoke. So I walked into the radio station, my first full-time job. And I walked into the receptionist and there was a guy behind the receptionist, a big guy with curly hair. And I said to the lady, and I put my hand out to her and I said, hello, ma'am, I'm your new nighttime disc jockey. I'm Night Smoke. And the guy behind her says, well, if it isn't Kid Curry. And I went, wait a minute. I hate that name. And here's why I didn't like that name. Esther, I'm assuming you've been on the planet long enough to know about the movie Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Yes. Well, in the 70s, the ABC television network did a, a takeoff of that show. It was called, um, I don't know. But the two characters ended up being Kid Curry and Hannibal Hayes. So when I was in high school, all of my friends were joking, hey, it's Kid Curry, Kid Curry. And I hated that. So when the guy behind her said, well, if it isn't Kid Curry, I said, I hate that name. And he says, well, I'm not going to sign your check. Kid Curry it is. <laughs> Call me all you want. I need. And by that time, of course, I'd wasted all my money driving across the country because it was a different life back then. Gas was very expensive in the middle 70s. So this name, it attached me to a, a vibe. Hey, it's a Kid Curry. And I had a real young sounding name. I still have a real young sounding voice. So I had this character that I kind of created was this Kid Curry guy. And I had a feature at the end of my radio show that I would do all the time. And I called that feature bed check. What I would do is I would let the kids in high school and I'd open up the phone lines and I'd let them say whatever they wanted to say. Make a joke about your name, your mom, your school, your little brother. And I would fire back quick, smarty comments. The bed check became very famous. So now I'm in Miami. I've got this big radio show and I'm doing this thing called bed check at night. And it becomes kind of what makes me a national radio guy because all the other DJs started doing the same kind of thing. So I've had a really crazy, fun, exciting career that went on starting in Miami, but I left there to go become a boss in San Antonio. I failed miserably at being a boss in San Antonio. And I went up to Washington, D.C. I don't know where you want to stop me, but I've got story after story. But I'll just make it real quick. So I have this radio career that goes on. I'm a DJ and I'm a boss at some places where I failed miserably. But in 1996, after being on the radio in Miami for almost 20 years, they decided to make me the boss. When I got there in 1976, I was the youngest guy on the radio. But fast forward 20 years later, I'm the oldest guy. And so after they had all these other bosses try to make this radio station Power 96 famous, it really never clicked in for them. But when they made me the boss, because I'd been there so long, I really felt like I knew what to do. Miami by that time was very bilingual. There had never been a top 40 music radio station, you know, all the current hit music that played Spanish songs at the same time. So what I did was I found the famous Spanish songs that were on the Spanish top 40, and I intertwined those with the top 40 hits of a America and Power 96 had the highest ratings in the history of the radio station. So I'm rolling along after having this career. I become the boss. I become very famous because it wasn't my genius. It was the people that were there. I inherited. I just gave them a different thought process. These guys were stars already. I just kind of changed their mind and changed the music and the station became very famous. Everything is going well. I'm home visiting my mother with my wife and my kids 2004. And my mom says to me, as we're watching, do you remember that uh, the tsunami that happened around 2004? It was the first time we really saw anything like that on television. The one in Thailand? 
Oh, yes, ma'am. Where you saw the entire place just get wiped out. Well, I'm watching this with my mother on TV and she starts telling me and my wife, something's wrong with you. Look at your face. It's deformed here in the side. And she could tell that my eye was bothering me. Well, what she brought up were symptoms of multiple sclerosis. These things that she was talking about had happened to me throughout my entire life. I just didn't know what they were. One time my arm started creeping up on me and I felt the seizures in my shoulder and it was terrible. And I could feel it almost going up into my eye, my right eye. I thought I'd gotten bitten by fire ants or, you know, maybe a killer bee had hit me or something. And I was just fighting off something like that. But those symptoms happened throughout my life. And in 2004, they got so bad that my mom said, you really need to go to the doctor. So by April of 2005, I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. It forced me out of the radio business. And the reason is simple. As I told you, my father got me in this business. My dad was a radio guy. I bleed radio. I bleed top 40 radio in Miami. I had the best career there. But suddenly the day that my doctor told me on the phone that I've been diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, I stopped thinking about the radio station. And because I wanted the radio station to continue, I didn't want to slow it down. I left the radio business in 2005. I was crashing pretty hard. And that's where my life changed. That's where everything became scary. Because until the day the doctor told me I had MS, I'd never even heard of it. Well, I'd heard of it. I didn't care. I didn't know anything about it. I got the phone call at my corporate office because I was over there meeting with the geniuses in Naples, Florida. There's a three-hour drive across Alligator Alley to get to Naples from Miami. And I was at this corporate meeting and my doctor called. She said, I'm going to diagnose you with multiple sclerosis. I need to see you on Monday so we can start planning the rest of your life. And I'm like, excuse me? <laughs> really? Okay, I'll be there on Monday. And I put the phone down and walked into the corporate meeting. And I said, I got to go. I've just been diagnosed with MS. I don't know what that means. I'm out of here. And I got in my car, I called my wife. And for the three hours as I drove back to Miami, my wife did the 2005 version of Google. I never even knew that multiple sclerosis was a chronic disease that you could die from. I knew that my symptoms were getting pretty serious. I felt like I wasn't even walking on the ground. My legs, my feet began to get numb. I started having shooting pains throughout my back. MS is such that you get lesions on your brain. And wherever those lesions land is the part of your body that is affected. The lesions in my head basically affect probably three quarters of my legs from my waist down. I really don't have much feeling in my legs. I can't walk. I can stand up, but I can't let go because I've got a vertigo thing too. There's also something in my brain with vertigo. This all happened and changed my life. In eight years, I didn't know if I was going to live. The doctor had me on experimental MS drugs. I was on solumetrol treatments three and four times a year for eight years, trying to slow down the progression of this disease. And then he says, guess what? There's a new drug you need to try. I was open to try all sorts of fun things. And he says, I want you to change this medicine, but I also want you to take massive doses of vitamin D. First of all, because of the kind of radio show I had, I put my mom on my radio show my whole career. And when I was younger, I'd call her and say, I'm not married yet, mom, stuff like that. But she would always tell me before I hung up, she'd say, make sure you take your vitamin C. It'll help you stay out of the cold. And she'd be sniffling. I'm saying, sure, mom, vitamins, sure. So I never really believed in vitamins. So when the doctor told me that he wanted to change my medicine and make me take large doses of vitamin D, I changed the medicine for six months and I blew off the vitamin D. 
but he and my wife were in contact. She was on me every week. Come on, you got to start trying this. The doctor knows it's going to help you. There is apparently something that happens to MS patients where we don't retain vitamin D. First of all, humans don't retain vitamin D very well. For some reason, it's even more tragic with MS patients. And my doctor believes there's a combination of vitamin D and medicine works. Something about it. And he had me on 30,000 IUs a day of vitamin D along with my daily medication that injections. Six months after I started doing that, my condition leveled off. That fingernails down the chalkboard thing that was always in my head, that scare, that fear that something was just going to stop working or I was going to fall over and curl up, it went away. So I'm kind of a medical lucky person proving that the medical system works. The magic of modern medicine basically stopped my MS. Now, I've not gotten any better. I've not gotten any worse. What I've learned to do is live with my condition. And say since about 2014 or 15, I've been the same guy physically and mentally, fortunately, because I was going through some serious mental problems. Wow. Well, can I just make one call? It's just funny that Kim, the name of the Kim, because Kimberly is like Ashley, that they started off as male names. And they somehow became female names. It was like Lord Kimberly. It was the name of a place. Here's the lie I've been living my whole life. Kimberl in my family is a last name. My mother gave me that name and I was a kid. I didn't know there was a connection. Yeah. All I knew was that everybody made fun of Kim and I didn't like it. And it bothered me. But my mother in her mental psyche, she says, well, you just tell him it's the male version of Kimberly. It's Kimberly <laughs> and Kimberl. However, I've been on the planet now 67 years. I've never met another guy named Kimberl in my life. I've met people with the last name because Kimberl is a last name and I've got it and there are others out there, but never as a first name. So my mother <laughs> lied to me. Part of why I'm such a freak is because of that. <laughs> no, no, no. One of a kind, we call it. it. Well, you can Google it. There's only one guy named Kimberl in America. It's me, unfortunately. Oh. Hooray. Woohoo. <laughs> I do want to ask about the books, but going back to the thing where you mentioned about like how you learn how to build a show, what does that mean to like learn how to build a show? Well, you have to realize there's a lot of rules. First of all, the DJ is irrelevant. What yeah. people really want is they want the music. And it takes a long time for a DJ who thinks, hey, people are really listening to my every word I'm saying, and they're hanging on to every word. And today is a beautiful day. And what a sunny morning it's going to be. And tomorrow it's going to be even better. Nobody wants to hear that. But every young DJ does that. I'm connected to two of the legendary top 40 program directors in America. Anybody out there who's ever done radio before, when I say Jerry Clifton and Bill Tanner, you know that that's why I am who I am. I've been labeled by those guys. It's a very unique situation where these guys beat it into your brain that you've got seven words or seven seconds. Pick one. And so when you can learn to master being able to say the name of a song, it's 45 degrees outside and it's da-da-da-da what radio station. You get into that vibe where you can do that. It's unique. The guys who work for Jerry Clifton and Bill Tanner, we're all across America. But for some reason, these two guys taught us in a way that other program directors don't teach. So we are in a class of our own. Robert W. Walker, a very famous radio DJ in America, also produced the Gloria Stefan Broadway show with his wife. Don Cox, a very famous DJ in America. There's a bunch of us out there, but we're the kind of guys who don't get on and think that we're the most important thing on the radio. We get on. <laughs> don't laugh at that. You know why guys do that? There's a reason why guys who are on the 
the radio with a talking like this. We hear ourselves from the inner ear as humans, but when you put on a set of headphones, suddenly you're hearing yourself from the outside. As a human, when you hear that as a young DJ, you say, well, I've got to change my voice because I don't sound the same as I do in my head. And that's really why that happens. We call that puking. Now you know why DJs puke. And again, it takes a while to get over that in your head. There are some guys who've been in the business as longer than me who still talk like that and they think it's the right thing to do. But anyway, there's inside radio stuff. How did I get there? They probably just can't break out of this point. How do you choose the songs that you're going to play? Is it they're pushing certain songs so you have to somehow build them in? You have to figure out how you're going to balance faster songs, slower songs. That's gone through different cycles through my entire career. In the very beginning of my career, I believe was probably in the 1970s, pretty much Paola Connect. <laughs> Here's what happens. Program directors have a music director. I had music directors. As the program director, you're the one who gets the final say, but the music director kind of goes through all the songs out there. And believe me, every day there are thousands of them. And he goes and he finds the ones that would appeal to your radio station and your direction. As the program director, my music director, he knew what I wanted to do. He would know that this song fits in his head. This song doesn't fit in his head. And if it fits in his head, it's probably going to be on the radio station. That's the true way to do it. However, some guys, music directors and program directors, we always talk about the briefcase that comes in on yeah. Thursdays. Some guys, I'm not going to mention names, but there's a whole bunch of them out there that, that live their radio careers taking the briefcase. My guys, Jerry Clifton and Bill Tanner, were absolutely against that. They were like, no, because each market sounds different. Miami sounds different than Dallas. Dallas sounds different than Knoxville. Knoxville sounds different than Washington, D.C., because the market should decide, the people should decide what songs that should be on in that market. These guys would always teach me and taught all the guys who programmed with them that we don't take money. We only play music for the people we're playing radio for. That's what we did. And so we take all the songs that are out there, the ones that I felt that worked the best. And believe me, after being in Miami for 25 years, it was pretty easy for my music director or anybody. And it used to drive the record companies crazy because they send in guys all week long. Hey, you've got to hear this song. It's the new one by Spice Girls, the new one by White Clef Jean. It's the new Puff Daddy. It's the new Biggie. It's the new Tupac. And if it didn't fit in my head, I wouldn't play it. Drive record companies crazy because all across America, guys are saying, oh yeah, this is the latest by the Spice Girls. It's got to be good. No, it doesn't got to be good. It may be a Spice Girls song, but maybe it's not their best. And in reality, we're talking top 40 music. There's only 40 songs that are current that, that a radio station is going to play. And because my radio station and the guys that I work with were so successful, we cut that list down to 28. So there's only so many songs that a person can fathom. You can't have too many songs out there. You can have four or five big hit records and then fill in between with songs people already know. Those are the recurrent songs, songs that were hits a year ago or so. So it's a science and it's a weave that is very difficult to achieve. However, when you do, you can have the number one radio station in Miami, Florida, because it happened for nine years. And it was the largest radio listening audience in the Southeast USA. 
But I, but like I said, it all goes back to the people that taught me and to the guys I inherited. What's that time frame that you're trying to fill? It's a two, three hour time slot or an hour? Or that was the whole day. You have the 28 songs going over a day? Or- there are some songs that rotate once every hour and a half. Yeah. And that's the way it goes. <laughs> but remember, that sounds weird. It's, oh man, you play the same song every hour and a half. Well, you don't sit there all day and listen to the radio. You go out and you do things in and out. That really never happens that someone sits there and then goes, oh, they just played that song an hour and a half ago. So that's the science of the business. We have felt that an hour and a half to hour and 15 minutes fits the cumulative audience. Remember, you have a shared audience. The share audience, it's like 7-Eleven. A lot of people come in and out of 7-Eleven. They don't stay very long. But at the library, they go and they stay forever. There are some radio stations like easy listening radio stations that that are the library. You tune in, you stay there. Top 40 radio is like 7-Eleven. You come, you go. You want to hear the other radio stations? What are they playing? That's just the way it is, the nature of the beast. These are things that you just learn after doing radio broadcasting for 33 years. These are things that are in my head that made us very successful. But it's no longer that way in radio. I want to remind you, Esther, there was a time in America when an owner could could only own 7 a.m. and 7 f.m. radio station. That's all you could own. Well, that was the 70s. Then in 1996, Bill Clinton's FCC, Federal Communications Commission, dropped that rule and let people own as many as they wanted. Well, what that did was a major corporate takeover, a company called Clear Channel, which everyone refers to now as iHeartRadio. The reason they changed their name was because they were taking over so many radio stations and eliminating so many jobs. They got such a negative vibe in the business. They had to change the name from Clear Channel to iHeart because it was detrimental to their health because they came in and took over all these radio stations, bought them all up. They syndicate them now. One DJ on seven radio stations and they just take it down the line. And it's very, very cheap now. There are no guys like me who sit there every day and live in a market and know exactly that this Gloria Stefan song probably shouldn't be on the radio, whether we're in Miami or not. They put it on because, well, it's Gloria Stefan in Miami. And there are now four primary owners. There used to be thousands of AM and FM radio station owners in America in the 70s. There are four primary owners of broadcast facilities in America now. And the thousands and thousands of jobs that have disappeared and the quality of the business, the quality of the radio has suffered immensely. Radio stations like mine that used to achieve six and seven rating shares get ones and twos now because it's just the epitome of what happens when the corporate office takes over. Well, you also don't need a radio to get music anymore. No, not anymore. I mean, not in your car, I should say. Instead, you have thousands of podcasts now. That's what we do. Talk radio isn't so different because there's not a lot of places that have local news talk shows. The talk shows are usually also syndicated also on the bigger channels. Which is, again, why couldn't you have your own talk show? What what town do you live in? Orange County, in Southern California. Okay, well, Orange County can have their own talk shows. There's plenty happening in Orange County where you could do your own talk show and relate to the city as opposed to hearing national crapola, which is normally, that's what my books are about. These, These books here are all about what happened in 1987 when President Ronald Reagan, he vetoed the Fairness and Broadcasting Act of 1987. And that included a fairness doctrine. And that doctrine required equal time for contrasting points of view. In other words, if you heard someone lie or give disinformation on the radio, you as a citizen, Esther, had the right to go to that broadcast facility and say, I demand equal time so I can prove this person a liar. In 1987, Ronald Reagan took that rule out. He said it was because it was antagonistic to the rights given in the First Amendment, the rights of free speech. Big mistake. That's why we have the division we have in America today. 
It wasn't like this back in 1976. You also have modern technology changed all that. Yeah, anybody can have a podcast or a YouTube channel now, and you can make it big without being a big newspaper. It used to be, you have to be a big newspaper to make it big, and now you don't have to be that anymore. It's funny, I hear you say this, I hear other people say it from a different perspective. We want to debate people, they don't debate us. I don't know, I'm not behind the scenes on any of these. And I'm just saying on American broadcast airwaves, remember what comes out of your TV, on your TV and on the radio, comes out of a transmitter at one point. The FCC controls those. They're the ones that took that rule away. So the FCC could once again reinstate the fairness doctrine because at least that way, one place everyone could know there would be fair debate. There is no fair debate now. But if there was a fairness doctrine on broadcast airwaves, you could have fair debate. You can have people say whatever they want, but then you can bring back and you can and debate and you would be forced to debate with equal time. And at least that way, there's one place where you could have open, fair debate. And I'm with you. Podcasts, all this other stuff, this is all other types of information. But to get on and lie about people and tell stories that aren't true, I just think there should be a place where America could go and say, well, if that's what I hear, let me see what the other side is. Let's go to the radio station and see what the other side is. Now that we have all that on the radio, let's switch over to the books now. What compelled you now that you're out of, I guess you're out of radio and you're trying to deal with your diagnosis. So where do the books come into all this? Here's what happened. First of all, Esther, there's a real psychological thing going on when your kid Curry, the radio DJ that everybody listens to in markets all around America, there are kids who would say, oh, I grew up listening to Kid Curry. And then Kid Curry ends up being the program director of the most listened to the biggest radio station in Miami, Florida, which is kind of like junior Hollywood. And for nine years, I was interviewing for jobs in LA. I was going to the Grammys. I was really, and then all of a sudden this multiple sclerosis thing hits and I hit a screeching halt. I went from a cane to crutches to a wheelchair. Each one of those items made people step further away from me. In my life, people wanted to be next to me. I want to be next to Kid Gurry. Believe me, Wyclef Jean's a personal friend. Cindy Lauper will tell you she knows who I am. Gloria Stefan, well, she's mad because I stopped playing her songs. But anyway, <laughs> there comes a point to where people don't want to get close to you. When you're the guy in the wheelchair, and it took a long time for me to figure out what to do with that. So I started writing my story kind of as a therapy thing. I figured that I had a big radio career that I could probably sell books in D.C., Baltimore, Knoxville, Miami, San Antonio. Let me tell my story about my career, and then let's talk about multiple sclerosis. Let's talk about the diagnosis that stopped everything for me and what it did to me mentally and what it did to my wife and I. I mean, it changed everything for us. When I got diagnosed, the only thing I could think to do was to go home. I wanted to go to my hometown in Canyon City, Colorado, maybe 15,000 people in, in, well, maybe 30 in the county, 15 in the town, very small little town, very small little existence, but I was crashing. I was losing vision, couldn't walk, my hands, I couldn't use those. And I thought, you know, if I'm going to go down, if I'm really could die from this, I want to be home. So if I need help, I can call my high school buddies, the ones who are still around. My mom is still there. I can hang out with my mom. My sisters are all there. So I just thought to go home. So I learned how to have multiple sclerosis for about eight to 10 years. Financially, I didn't know what I was going to do. I thought I can't work any longer. What am I going to do? Fortunately, I was a busy program director. Being the boss at 
in Miami was a big deal. And I had a very strong staff, including the office staff. We had an office manager who would walk in and know that things were important to me, even didn't want to talk to me about it. Just sign this, sign this. At one point, she came into my office and she made me sign this long-term disability that I didn't even know I had. I mean, I get diagnosed. I quit my job. I'm four or five hours later, I'm, I'm cleaning out my desk and I'm freaking out. And I'm like, what am I going to do now? And Phyllis walks in and says, you sign that long-term, you're good. I was like, what? She's says, oh yeah, I put it under your hand one day and you just signed it. So you've got long-term disability. That was how I financially survived this sudden stoppage of work. This is where things in my life really begin to change. My wife and I take all our money and we come out to Little Canyon City and we think we're going to do some fixing and flipping, see if we can make some money fixing and flipping houses. So we have these two trailers. They're not even homes, they're trailers. We get them all fixed up and we think we're now going to hit the big time. We're going to head and get a house. So we, then we bought ourselves a house and we flipped that. But the three times my wife went to deal with these realtors, she hated the experience. They wouldn't talk to her. They wouldn't give her information. There was no personal service. Some of these people were my old high school friends. And she didn't like it. So she thought, well, I'm going to get my real estate license. She goes out and gets her real estate license. I knew my wife was a genius when I met her, but her job when we met was basically to, to be my person, to tell me what to do, how many meetings I had that day, when I had to get packed up to go to LA, when I had to go to Chicago or New York. She was my office manager. When that changed and she became the boss, when she took over this real estate thing within two years. She was breaking records in the state of Colorado per capita in this little town selling a hundred and some houses in a year's time. That got her on the map at her corporate office. Fast forward to this year, my wife is one of very few coaches with the Keller Williams real estate firm. And she is an international coach and teaches people how to sell houses now and does this all via Zoom. People do fly into our home. We have a fairly large resort place here that we live in. And she flies clients in, they have meetings here, but she's gigantic taken over the world. So that's really what happened to us personally. But me mentally, it took me a long time to get over not being someone people wanted to talk to very much and not being the star of the show when I walked into a room because when Kid Curry walks in, hey, look, it's Kid <laughs> Curry. It was a big deal. But then you know what my wife said to me, first, you've got to stop being so mad about being in that chair. I needed to hear that. I don't think it ever got to me. But when she said that a few years back, really, it's not my fault. Don't be so mad about it. So I stopped being mad about it. And then I realized that when Kid Curry walked into the room, everybody paid attention. But when the guy in the wheelchair rolls in the room, everybody pays attention. This Kid Curry DJ you see here, I could talk to anybody, anytime, anywhere, because I had gone into a cocoon for eight years. I stopped. I was just in neutral. I didn't know what to do. And then I, when I realized, wait a minute, you are the guy. When I roll into a room, I'm the guy that creates the conversation. I say hi to whoever I want to say hi to. People open the door for me. I have no problem saying, excuse me, tall person. I need that from the top of the shelf at this supermarket. I'm the focus of conversation now. It's funny how that whole thing had to change and how many years it took to do that until my wife said, you got to stop being so mad about being in that chair. That's all something I wanted to write about. 
That's the whole story. So I wrote my memoir. I wrote it about my career, about all the goofy stories. I had a boy band at one time, and the lead singer was the illegitimate child of Tom Jones. It's not unusual to be loved. Now, how do we know this? The case went to Judge Judy. Yep. But so, but what happened is because Judge Judy saw this paperwork and it's science. And she says, well, according to these numbers, this is probably Tom Jones's kid. But remember, those numbers are never perfect. There's always a hundredth of a tenth of a jillion of a thing off. And so his attorneys, that's how they beat the case because they appealed after Judge Judy said it's no, they appealed and they got it. But he is the illegitimate child is Tom Jones. There's all these little crazy stories about my radio career. But then it talks about the transition of when I got diagnosed into the eight years or so until my condition leveled off. What I learned was it's expensive to be disabled in America. It costs. My insurance company would give me one wheelchair and it's a motorized wheelchair because I can't walk in my house. I just kind of roll around. But if I want to leave my house, I've got to be able to take that wheelchair off of the main level of my home, outside into the garage, into the car, the vehicle that I can put my wheelchair in. Nobody pays for that but me. I have lifts that get me onto the main level of my house. I have another lift in the back part of the house that gets me out of the main level down to the backyard so I can go in the backyard. I have a $30,000 stair lift. I sit in the chair and it takes me up because I got three level home here. So it takes me up and down very slow. I hate it, but I got to do it. Nobody pays for this, but me and my wife. And had my wife not decided that she wants me to be as normal as I can be, I don't know what I would have done had I been in a situation where my wife fortunately is financially a genius and can afford all these things. We pay for this. Otherwise, I'd be in my house. I join meetings on Zoom, men over 50 with MS. I'm telling you, I live a very, very nice life compared to some gentlemen that I know are out there who have the same disease I have. But because my wife can afford to, to help me continue life, theirs can't or they don't have a support system. It's scary and sad and I hate it. But it's the other part of what my book is about. So it talks about my career, talks about my diagnosis, and it talks about the fact that it costs to be disabled in America. When I decided to write this book, it's different being a radio DJ. I could tell all kinds of stories on the radio, but it's different when you have to write them and yeah. make sense on yeah. paper. I had to hire a writing coach of the lady that founded the Northern Colorado Writers Association. Her name is Carrie Flanagan. I tracked her down because I needed someone to teach me. Got a hold of her like in August. And I told her, I said, hi, I'm a famous radio DJ. I want to write this story about my career and about my diagnosis. And she's like, okay, here, <laughs> before I talk to you, little boy, <laughs> you have to read these books. I'm going to teach you how to write before you talk to me because I will hone you, but you don't have a clue. So here, read these books. So there are books out there that can teach you how to be an author. And I'm going to throw the name of one of them out right now because there's some people who just want to write and they don't know how to get started. The name of the book is Save the Cat Strikes Back. That will teach you how to, how to write. It teaches you there's a spine to your story. Everything you write about has to come back to the spine of your story. So that's how I learned how to write. So Carrie didn't talk to me for six months. <laughs> these books. And quite frankly, she was busy with other authors. But when I sat down and we finally decided that we were going to work together, she made me submit everything and turned it down and took stories out that didn't matter to her and made me rewrite this and rewrite that. So I had to read and learn first. I did six months of 
messing with her and trying to get her to think, well, when she finally said, okay, we can move forward. Then I did six more months of research. And then I self-published my book. Fortunately, Come Get Me Mother, I'm Through is the name of the memoir. The reason that's the name of the memoir is because remember that little short thing I used to tell you about bed check I used to do? Yeah. At the very end of bed check, I would always say, come get me, mother. I'm through because I was a little kid, Curie, and everybody thought I was a little kid. So I would just do this thing at the end. I'd say, okay, come get me, mother. I'm through. So that's what I figured I would name the memoir. That's why how I started you, writing. Why did you decide to self-publish versus trying to go out with the publisher? Or was that even a thought? I did, but I'm not a very patient person. A very long process. I had gone to a thing. We have seminars here through the writing club and they bring, well, now it's all on Zoom and you pitch on Zoom. And I pitched my memoir, got interest, but it would have taken too long. So I went in and self-published. And then after I got it done, the people who I was talking to read it and they were like, sorry, you should have come to us first. I'm just impatient. And I wanted to get it out. It worked out. I mean, on Amazon, Howard Stern was number one and I was number 11 for about three weeks. So some people enjoyed it. Some people read it and <laughs> people are still yeah. enjoying it. People yeah. still read it. And I get messenger pictures sometimes of people's picture of my yeah. book and hey, I'm reading your story. So are you glad that you did that, the self-publishing? Or you kind of wish like, man, I wish I would have been more patient. I'm okay. In fact, I've self-published another book after that. I had a publisher on my last book. So I self-published two. And then I found Mindster Media and I work with Mindster Media and they, they helped me publish book number three, which was an Amazon number one bestseller, much to my shocking surprise. It's a relevant story. What is that third book about? Well, the third book is called Bonnie's Law, The Return to Fairness. As I spoke to you a moment ago about the fairness doctrine, I believe there needs to be a place where America can go and get honest information and honest debate. The story is about what happened in a small American town and its only radio station after the Fairness Doctrine was rescinded. And then it talks about this little girl who decides that she wants to bring the Fairness Doctrine back. And so she becomes a state senator. And it's a story that that's the real quick version, but it's the interplay in between because she loves horses. She becomes a best friend. Her best friend is from Mexico. They become very entwined. They become horse lovers. They've got friends who do funny, crazy things, but they all in the end realize that we lost truth and trust in 1987. And they kind of band together because they want to fight to bring back the fairness doctrine. And in the very end of my story, little Molly Alvin eventually decides she wants to run to be president. So... And, and it caught on and I'm just pleased. I was shocked when I talk about this story and I talk about truth. Everybody wants truth. Everybody wants to know facts. Because you know what? Most people don't even remember what happened in 1987. So when you realize there was a time in America where you couldn't lie without being called out, when you tell people that this was a, a real time in America, they're like, well, what happened to it? Why did we get away from it? There's a real belief that if you brought back this fairness doctrine, at least America would have a place to go to get honest debate. So that's what the story is all about. And little Molly's going to go do it. I mean, I'm a little skeptical. I think people don't want honest debate as much as we want them to want honest debate. No, I think some people do. Some people like it. Well, I'm, I know what my beliefs are, but that's why I bring it up to people. Everybody wants truth. I think that there has been this thing that's been out there for the last few years. I, I still believe people want truth. I mean, I believe that I people would prefer knowing facts, knowing the truth, as opposed to being sucked into this world of division. And that's really what it does. Remember, this system was in effect. So when you, as a citizen, went into a radio station or TV station and said, I need equal time, the people at that station didn't just put you on. They had to research to make sure you had actual facts. 
I went through this and I know it worked, but I believe that politicians get wrapped up in things. And I just don't think Ronald Reagan would have really wanted the division in America today. That probably would have been hard, though, for anybody to foresee how far it could go. It would have been hard. There's no doubt. No doubt. As soon as politicians start with, we're going to whatever, I already don't trust it. I don't know what backroom deals or who spoke to whom. I don't know. And some of them, if it's not their field, they only know the information that they're told. So you could say, oh, they should do a better job, which fine. But I'm saying as soon as they're starting to make laws about certain things, I don't know who spoke to you and I don't know where you're getting your information from. On any side, going back now to the books for a second, writing your memoir and you have to learn about the spine of the story and kind of have to rewrite and take this story out, take that story out. So focus on the memoir. You did have to figure out then like what is your main focus of the story? And it can't just be like, well, I used to be a DJ and I'm not. What did you kind of figure out or decide if there's a a general thing that I want to be getting across in the story that you knew that this story doesn't fit in and this story does fit in? What made that decision? Those decisions all came from the editors. It wasn't me. Even though I did self-publish, you can self-publish with editing. You can self-publish with everything a publisher would give you. You pay for it, but the editors took out the stories they didn't want. And as far as when I decided to write the memoir, remember, I had to spend a couple of months reading and researching. She made me read Michael J. Fox's memoir. She made me read Steve Martin's memoir. So I had a frame of reference before I started writing. And when I was halfway through the Michael J. Fox thing, it was like, oh, I see. This is how I'm going to do this. Because as you read through Michael's thing, you go all the way back to when he was a young actor and these things that were happening to him that he didn't realize were wrong. And it was just the way he, he, he said it. That was where I based it on. And as far as the story, I send all my books out to book club. I send them free. So I sent out the, the books and then they sent my books back. What? Yeah, the book club, one of the book clubs sent my books back. They didn't like something I'd written. Something made them send this book back. So I'd been banned by a book club. So I thought that was fun. Congratulations. Well, thank you. In fact, you know what? My publisher even wrote, (laughs) congratulations. Well, I actually wonder if part of the whole fairness doctrine is if you don't foresee that people can do national syndication, it also keeps voices in smaller markets. Well, it does. It's all a domino. One thing occurs and the next thing occurs, the next thing occurs. And now everyone's tearing each other apart. (laughs) That's how we're in this happy place. (laughs) Yeah, that's how we got here. Oh boy, oh boy. Yeah. (laughs) Are you thinking now that you feel like you're in a good zone now of just thinking of other stories to write kind of thing? Or you're like, well. I've got a few things. I got to play on the junior varsity high school basketball team one time. I was a sophomore. They took me off the sophomore basketball team to go play in the JV team one time because they thought I might be pretty good. (laughs) The head coach of all this, his name was Coach Plummer. About two weeks ago, I got a letter from Coach Plummer and his wife. And I'm like, what could this be? I realize I anger people with my books and things like that, but I really thought I didn't know. So when I opened it, I was really questioning what this was. But his wife had a friend in the 50s who was coming down with multiple sclerosis. They called it that, but they didn't know what it was. They didn't know what to do about it. And so he's writing this whole story about his life and what's happening to him. And it's all on this old type paper. So I'm going to go through this. And this is a version of what I went through only 60 years ago when nobody knew what to do. That's kind of piqued my interest. I think that'd be pretty cool. I'm kind of setting up in my brain because these are all fiction books. I'm thinking about making Molly the president. I'm thinking about maybe (laughs) having her win to show that there is a way. You know, the Fairness Doctrine was replaced by Section 230. It was replaced by that. Even now today, there are lawsuits against some people who have been accused of lying about other people. What they have never done before as they fight these lawsuits, they're talking about intent. So if you're lying and you're intent, 
is to disrupt. That's where this whole thing may hinge on whether or not we're going to go back to a fairness doctrine type thing. If there is intent in your lie, you're responsible. That sounds like like a defamation lawsuit that you, it's hard to prove malicious. They usually for libel and stuff, you have to prove like maliciousness. Unless you've got paperwork. Right. It actually like says it. If you're going to do these things and you intend on causing disruption or hurt, don't write it down because they're, they're <laughs> confiscating paperwork. And that's the tip for today. Don't leave a paper trail. <laughs> don't write it down. That intent part, I believe, can help Molly. I'm thinking about making Molly the president, getting her all the way to bringing a doctrine and putting it up for vote in the Senate. At the very end of the book, it lost by one vote. In the book, she rallied America because she believes the loss of truth and trust is detrimental to our society. And it's really important for her to bring it back. So I do have a variety of different things that are rolling in my head all the time to write about. You know, there's a bunch going on in my life, but I am going to get back to writing. So I'll now be back in my little thing here in my little cubby hole, and I'll be writing and coming up with other stories. As a matter of fact, I've already planned on publishing a picture book, a coffee table book. I take pictures from my wheelchair and I refer to them as the view from my wheelchair. I live in Colorado where when you look that way, you see all the Rocky Mountains. And today I have a picture of the snow for the first time this year. But there are some incredible sunsets that happen. And that's really what it is. It's full of sunsets and sunrises. And it's going to be the view from my wheelchair. So it'll be a picture book that I'll be putting out here probably in the next year uh, as I write. Because the picture book is not as hard to do as writing. I just got to find pictures and little captions with them. In the picture book, I'm thinking about having a cartoon segment that kind of cartoons my life and then shows the pictures as opposed to me in a picture with a martini and all you know i want to do cartoons something something different it's like same and different yeah do you see any sort of parallels between building a broadcasting show and actually building a structure for a book oh yeah you have to realize reality the reality of radio is that my wife my after being in miami for 20 years on the radio and being a top 40 dj she did not know who i was that was so uncommon for me because she's a true radio listener she listens for the music and not for the dj when you realize reality and this is the truth about how to write a book. This is the truth about how to be a broadcaster. You have to be real and tell the truth about it. And yes, there is a connection. Weeding and getting out all the BS is muy importante. Yeah. We always wrap up with like a fill in the blank of I really like it when. And using any of the nouns of I really like it when writers, editors, publishers, books, series, bookstores, covers, whatever, anything there, do X and I really don't like X. Your soapbox answers, your off-the-cuff answer. Just choosing one, how you fill in the blank. I really like it when someone writes me and says, hey, I know what you're talking about when it comes to this multiple sclerosis thing, because that's really what the whole book is about to me. So when I connect with a reader, it's like when I connect with that little girl who wrote me last week, all she said was, I read the book about Bonnie and I like horses. She couldn't have been more than 12 years old. And I was just enamored by the fact that she enjoyed the book enough to say, I really like Bonnie and I really love horses. I think when you make a connection like that, that's really what's important. I write because I think someone is going to pay attention. And then when someone pays attention, it's fulfilling. And I enjoy that. What would you say for, it doesn't have to be the flip, but I really don't like it when writers, books, editors, whatever, etc. I really don't like it when I get stuck. As a writer, (laughs) 
there's nothing worse than getting stuck. Writer's block is a mess. However, I think it was Stephen King who says, there's really not writer's book. Just shut your brain off and start over again. Okay. All right. Easy for you to say. Well, him, yeah, specifically. (laughs) That's another thing. I haven't read as much as I've read since I started writing. And now as a radio DJ, I read every magazine, every newspaper that came out because I had to be current event oriented, but I'd never read a book. We all think we read Animal Farm when I was young in high school. I probably didn't. I said I did, but I didn't. (laughs) I read all the time now. There's a huge stack of books back there. And my latest is All the Light We Cannot See. Yeah, I read that. Isn't that beautiful? Scary to me. I mean, the whole book, every time I move, these, this is a little girl, the little boy, and I'm like panicked by what's going on in their lives. <laughs> and I learn a lot from reading. That's why I read, because it, it teaches me how to write better. Yes, absolutely. Kim, thank you so much. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks for being on. Well, Esther, like I said, I'm pretty distracted in my, and I talk about whatever I want to talk about. So I'm sorry if I didn't make much sense, but you know. This was a bonus episode of All My Work Podcast featuring author and former broadcaster Kim Curry. To find out more about Kim and his work, please visit the link in the episode notes. To find out more about On My Word Podcast and keep track of all the great stuff we're up to, please follow us on Instagram at On My Word Podcast or check us out at elteneven.com. Music is by Tim Burke. Thanks so much for joining us. Catch you next time.